0: Hey there, it's me, Darby. Thanks for popping me in your ears today. This little show started out as an audio diary about the coronavirus lockdown. And since the murder of George Floyd, it's kind of turned into a show where I check in with my black friends in Minnesota. And so I have one more of those interviews today with my friend William Hill. William is also someone I know from the karate world. In fact, most of the people that I'm still in touch with in Minnesota besides the people I went to school with um, are from the karate world because that's where I was raised. He owns a school in a suburb outside of Minneapolis called Eden Prairie, but he also works a day job. You'll hear more on that later. I started by asking what I ask everyone. How are you holding up?
1: Actually, I mean, all, con- all things considered, I'm doing really well. It's um, been emotionally exhausting, as I'm sure you can understand, you know, on a lot of different fronts, really. Watching the reaction downtown it was frightening and it was, um, I can, I can understand the anger that was happening. And I, in the protesting part, I get the, the riots and the looting. I was, you know, having a difficult time along with everybody else, Hmm. having a very difficult time with that because a lot of the people that were, a lot of the people that were being damaged were minority business owners. I, you know, I think the, on the positive side, I think what's happened is it really has, um, sparked, a lot of discussion. I've been inundated with either messages or text messages or phone calls from a lot of my white friends. One, asking me the same thing that you just did, um, you know, and how, how are you holding up through all this? And, and, then, and then having them become very aware that maybe for the first time that I do live a different life than they do. And they just had never really thought about that.
0: Speaking of living a different life than his white friends, William told me a story about one of his early encounters with police. I should preface this by telling the non-Minnesotans that Minnetonka, at the time um, that this happened anyway, had to be one of the whitest towns in the state, if not the country. I went to a massive high school there, and we had one, maybe two Black kids in my entire class.
1: So I was driving at the time with my Then white girlfriend and we were going out to Minnetonka for something and we were immediately surrounded by cops guns drawn everything had me get out of the car pulled her over was talking to her had me I was you know hands on the hood of my car frisked and then they took my license and they got in their car and then they came back and they gave it back to me and they turned around and they got in their cars. And they left and did not say a word.
0: Were you speeding? Was there any reason that they pulled you over or were they just being just harassing you?
1: have no idea. Have no idea.
0: Wow. Like, what did they say? Like, take, walk us through it. Like, what did they say to you when they pulled you over?
1: Well, they came up and they said, get out of the car. I mean, they had guns drawn. So I got out, you know, I got out and my hands were up. And they had me put my hands on the hood of my car and then they went around and grabbed her out and moved her over away and then frisked me, opened up my car, went through my car. I mean there was nothing in there.
0: Yeah.
1: Went through my car. Then they found my wallet. So they pulled my license out. One cop went in, must have run my license, came out, the other he was talking with the other group. They came back and gave me my license and they all just turned around and got in their cars and left. Wow. Now naturally When I tell that story, the first thing that everybody says is, Well, why didn't you protest? And why didn't you go? Why did you pull me over? What is this about? And I keep trying to tell them the fact is, when they pulled me out, they had guns drawn. Mm. And then when they gave me my license and they turned around and walked away, that's all I wanted them to do was to go away. Yeah. And so I didn't ask any questions. I just, I was shaken. And they all got in their cars and they left and we got back in she was crying and she's like I don't even understand what that was and I said well I I do but you know there wasn't anything illegal going on
0: Of course driving while black can still be pretty scary
1: You know uh, Brooklyn Center was and Brooklyn Park were put on lockdowns and I have a really good friend down in Texas and his mom his dad had passed away and his mom was alone and um and he was real concerned about her. And I just said, you know, I'll, I'll just drive over there because she lives by my mom's, So I'll just drive over there and drive by her house and call you back and let you know that everything's okay. Well, as I was doing that I, at the time, I didn't realize that we had curfews in, in, up here in these towns. I didn't know that. And so I'm calling him and I'm like, okay, there's nobody on the road. Everything is shut down. I've never seen this before. What's going on? But I ended up driving by his house and I drove by... Um, my mom's just in case, and then came home and then realized that I was breaking the law because I was the one out on the curfew, breaking the curfew.
0: Oh my God. Thank God you didn't get pulled over.
1: <laughs> well, so then that became funny because then I was telling a friend of mine that that's what I did. And we were both laughing and buddy goes, wow, well, at least this time if they pulled you over, they would have not touched you. <laughs> a little too sensitive. They were like, Sir, can you please just You're making our life really hard right now.
0: Do you remember your parents giving you um, the talk?
1: No, I was born in the South. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have to tell me anything because I was living (laughs) amongst it, you know, as a child. So you kind of, you know, I mean, it's, you grow up and you understand when you're in that kind of an environment, you understand very young, the difference. And people don't have to explain that to you.
0: I wanted to go back to all the texts that William had been receiving from people like me. Yeah, how do you feel about getting all those text messages? Because I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing um, varying responses from, I have one friend who joked, he's like, is it like get a Black friend on Facebook day? Because I am getting so many friend requests from white people. Um,
1: yes. <laughs> so I, I think that I would like the focus to switch to teaching rather than being angry. So you asked me how I feel about, you know, the people that ask me those questions. And I honestly, I'm okay with it because I look at it as if they're asking questions because they really don't know. Yeah. And then if they don't know, somebody has to be able to, there has to be somebody that's willing to teach.
0: Yeah, I agree with you and I also um as as a middle-aged white lady, I'm here to tell all the other middle-aged white ladies that there's a whole internet out there and I've been posting resources in the show notes for these these episodes that where we've been talking about Minnesota so that you can educate yourself. It's not necessarily your black friend's job to um um to handle that to do that work for you and to do that you know emotional labor if they had to do that for if you had to do that for every white person you know william you'd have to you'd have to open a business
1: well in fact we actually we joked about that <laughs> we just open up a business and you could come and get your card and your certificate and go i'm i'm now absolved of built and i'm good
0: yeah. I... <laughs> well, that's the thing is that I think these text messages, yes, I, I do believe that, that well-intentioned white people are checking on you, but they're also doing it to assuage their, their guilt. Don't you think?
1: Yes, I do. I do. And you know what, but I mean, when you don't know what else to do, because I really do believe they don't know what else to do. I mean, because they feel, or at least I've been told, is they feel like they want to help because they feel bad, but then people, the angry people, yell at them and say, "Because they're white, they have no business feeling bad," you know. And so then they feel stuck. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I can't help. If I don't help, then I'm accused of not being care. If I try to help, I get yelled at. So, and and it's it's interesting because what I everybody looks at me, and almost every single person I've either texted me or called me has said, "Well, I don't see color," so it's really. It's really hard for me. I don't see color. And I have to explain to them, I go, well, no, here's part of the problem. And I do believe that they're saying this from a well-intentioned place. I really do. I do believe they really believe that because they've been told, again, these lessons, they've been, somebody's taught them that color should mean absolutely nothing, but that's not what happens because that's not, that's not reality. They're walking down the street alone and they see a group of black teenage boys hanging out they absolutely see color right but then when they look at me they go well i don't see color and i go well why not because i am a black man so how is it that you don't see that or is being black in your mind something different and you don't see me has that something different
0: When we set up our interview, William asked me to watch a film called River of Hope. You can see it on Amazon. It's the true story of Mary Barnes Cobble, a former enslaved person who, along with her children, founded what would become West Virginia State University, one of the first black colleges ever. Now, we're going to spoil it, so skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want to be spoiled, but it is, like, history, so, um... I think usually you can't spoil (laughs) true stories, but whatever. Um, But it's not so much the part about her founding the college that is so interesting. It's how she came into the land that eventually became the grounds of the school that is the interesting part. She inherited this land from her owner slash husband. Yeah, he fell in love with her, freed her, and eventually they actually got married and had children. So this guy wasn't um, a traditional owner of people in the way that we think of slave owners. He bought and saw and sold enslaved people as a commodity, just like soybeans or cattle. He didn't work them himself. He just traded them um, until he met Mary and fell in love with her and they got married. So complicated.
1: It's super complicated. And that's I mean, and when you think about it down in that part of the country, it it was it was there were stories like that all over the place where people internally were struggling with the fact that, you know, on one hand you can have you can own people, but on the other hand, you're actually in love with this person and you look at them as a human and then but they're the same. And then, you know, and so I I was really taken aback with that movie. Just on that on that premise alone, and then he was a southern sympathizer during the Civil War. So he wanted to help the Confederates. He wanted to do this because it was his business that was going to be threatened if they abolished slavery, and that's all he cared about was his business. He wasn't caring about the human aspect of it. He just cared about his business, and then those northerners came and killed him for it. And those northerners that killed him for it were white. Um, do you think she loved him?
0: like really loved him
1: you know what i think she i think she did i at the beginning i think she did what she did for survival and i think over time because she was clearly upset when he was killed i mean like she reacted like any other wife would seeing your husband sprawled out on the front yard yeah
0: that's what got me that's what got me i would have been like shouldn't she be jumping for joy right now
1: right now it's actually <laughs> over and i use that as a context just for the complexity of race relations in this country. And I think it's very easy for people to go, well, that's back in the 1800s. We've moved so far. Here we are 2020. How are we still having this conversation? I think that people forget really how close we are to that still. Okay, well, I was born December of 1962. So 100 years before I was born, just 100 years before I was born, this country still had slaves. And so for people to go back and look at all the things that happened, you know, this past few weeks in Minneapolis, it can be very confusing. I I mean, because what we're talking about now is not talking about the overt things that people are reacting to. We're talking about the underlying things that are there that I believe at some level, everyone knows are there, but that's the stuff that we need to talk about. I mean, we can talk about and identify these overt acts, but it's that stuff that's the undercurrent that that we need to talk about. Because those overt acts are just the, the they're the spark that has those 10 trillion undercurrent things that go on every day. And then all of a sudden that one overt act happens and all of those 10,000 things come flying out at once. So I would say that for the majority of what you saw or what everybody in the world witnessed here in Minneapolis and then, you know, eventually pretty much all over the country, all over the world actually was those 10,000 racist things that happen on a daily basis that people just live with. It's not over. it's not, but it's there and you know it's there. And then finally this one overt action happens and then all of that stuff came blowing up like a volcano. Mm-hmm. So it's everything. I work in a school district during the day, and this is an absolutely true story. And this just happened literally mm, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, something like that. Okay. So um, these two white lady teachers were communicating during coronavirus and talking about distance learning. And the subject of race came up and the one white lady messaged the other one and said, well, on a good day, I call niggers porch monkeys and wait for their check. Now, she she did that as one white person to another, and so the the first thing that the teacher who received this message did was contact me and was very upset and she's like, well what why would i why would why would she think that I would be okay with that?" And I said, "Well, you're white. What else does she need? She's just making an assumption right now I said, "Now, here's the thing. she did that." feeling very comfortable from what white woman to the other, because she feels like that internally, she just assumes you do too. Otherwise, she wouldn't have sent that to you. So I think we can, without really having to get into this woman's head, I think we can probably think that that's a safe assumption. And I said, and the interesting thing is, if you're at an equity, if you're at an equity meeting in front of people, this same woman would be the one crying and saying how she loves her students and blah 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 and we need to really have equity you know for everybody blah 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 right that's the public face that she would give even though she doesn't feel that way and i explained to the other teacher i said so here's the thing so when you see the black staff kind of roll their eyes when we go to equity meetings i'll explain to you why the reason is is because if you've ever dealt with anything like that." you can recognize it immediately. And if you're somebody who feels that way, but on inside, but then on the outside, you have to give a different persona for people. You can only keep that down so much. It starts to leak out in little things that you do, little things that you say, it does come out. There's no way to keep it buried. And if me has a person of color is sitting next to her and I see one little leak, I got her, I've pegged her. I know, Im- I know immediately where she stands. If I was the teacher who received it, I would actually reach out to her and go, Why would you? I would ask her that question. Why would you feel like I would be comfortable getting this? And how come? What is it about you that makes you feel this way? And I mean, that was an actual opportunity to dive in and really work with her.
0: Did you hear that, white people? It's on us to call this shit out when other white people say and do racist shit. So back to the cops. Um, William is somebody I think of as very pro-police. He's somebody who's going to throw up a a photo of a blue candle or something if a cop is killed. Like, he is um, super supportive of police. And after hearing that scary story when the cops pulled him over as a young man, I wondered how he came around to being on Team Cop. Did you have those good feelings about them even when you were um you know young and being pulled over with, with guns drawn?
1: No, no, not at all, not at all, not at all. no, but i'm that's what I'm trying to say. See, I did that when I was a kid, just like everybody else does. It took me to get to know them, to go ride along with them and be a part of that experience. Now I look at all police differently because of that. Okay, yeah, yeah totally changed my outlook on them and everything and um and i you know when stuff like stuff like this happens i reach out to them and i talk to them because you know and i feel bad for them because they are all very good people they're very good solid people i have very good experiences with the police Mm -hmm. um for the most part so i can give you like all the interactions i've ever had with police Um, the bad ones, like the one in Minnetonka, like on that level, 3% of them, 3 or 4%, that's it. The rest have all been super positive and good. In fact, I have several friends that I care about very much that are all officers, and I've been more than welcome to hang out and be with them in their little circles, um, And it's been, and so even some of those guys who are friends of my friend became friends of mine. And um, I go, I've gone on ride-alongs, which I would say everybody should do because it's easy to judge. When you have to make hard, fast decisions like that, it's easy to be critical on the sidelines. But when you actually are with them and you see how fast things transpire, that's it's, it's kind of scary to think that you have to, that you have to make decisions that quickly and they're serious decisions and you're responsible for every single one. So that's a lot of pressure. I think the two cops that held Floyd down in the back, they were training officers
0: Yeah.
1: and the senior guy was the, the guy that had his knee on Floyd's neck. He was the senior ranking guy. And they both asked at some point, shouldn't we roll him over? And they were both told no. I mean, they were in a no-win situation, Darby. No matter what they were going to do, they were going to lose. Is they could have got up, let's say for example, they get up and they push him off and Floyd, Floyd lived. We don't have a news story now because it was really a, an incident that doesn't really matter. He was there, he lives, he moves on, whatever. But internally, the Minneapolis Police Department was going to handle that, and they both would have lost their jobs.
0: Yeah, um, and I wonder if they had if they had saved Floyd's life, and instead of going to their you know superiors, they went to the news. If that, I mean, they they would have you know they then yeah maybe they're not cops
1: anymore. But no, they're not cops anymore. They're not cops anymore, no matter what or they do what the police department tells them to do, which is against what the public wants them to do and they lose their jobs and now they're in jail. Yeah,
0: well, I don't know. I just, oh, this is the part that, that I find so frustrating is that, you know, I keep hearing this Analogy that if you have ten bad cops on a on a force of a thousand, then suddenly you have a thousand bad cops because the nine hundred and ninety look the other way and don't and don't like like that video in Buffalo. That one I did accidentally see the one with the old guy, and that one cop tries to help him, and another cop actually pulled him away. I mean, what do you make of that?
1: Everybody who looks at the video says it's wrong. What I'm saying is that you know we set we set up the military and the police and things of that nature in a very rigid system because of the nature of the job and because of the inherent risks that you're taking every time that you have to interact with somebody, there's not a lot of room for discussion and it has to be that way in order for the people in, you know, in the military or in the police out there, in order to provide safety and security for all the people, it has to be that rigid. So you you follow what you're told you do that based on the fact that the person telling you is responsible and good. This guy was not, he was not, he was a bad, he was a bad cop and had a history of being a bad cop. Yeah. And so, you know, there was a lot of things that happened here. It was a, it was a series of just absolute gaffes in the system that ultimately culminated in, in George Floyd dying. Because that guy shouldn't have been a field training officer. He, in fact, should not have been out in the field probably anyway. Uh, A a cop friend, um, he's not in town, but he watched the video and he said um, that that the look in that guy's eyes, it wasn't necessarily that Floyd was a black man. He was just a piece of junk. He wasn't even a human. He dehumanized him. The force should have pulled him a long time ago. And somebody probably knew that and they didn't do it.
0: Yeah, Amy Klobuchar knew that and (laughs) didn't do anything about it.
1: (laughs) Didn't do it. So anyway, there's, so, you know, again, that's, again, one of those 10,000 underlining things that happened inside the police force that could have absolutely avoided that whole thing. And so I think that's, you know, the people can riot about the overt actions, but I really think the discussion has to be those 10,000 daily things that people live with every day, that that's the discussion. And that only comes from education. I mean, that change is only gonna come from education. And, and so we have to just calm, turn the volume down on the anger and start to teach and not necessarily have to teach all the big lessons, but the the thousands of little ones because you're going to see, be around friends that are going to do something or say something that are going to be racist. And it's not going to seem like that big of a deal, but then that's when you call them out on it and then and tell them that that's what it was.
0: Yeah, I'm so proud of my dad. My dad had a friend from, I guess he's a high school friend who would send him... Um, especially when Obama was in office, he would send him racist jokes. And my dad finally, you know, he would he would he ignored it for a little while. And then he finally responded and said, hey, man, I this is I, I don't I don't like this. And I don't want you to ever share this kind of stuff with me ever again. This is not you know, it's not cool by me. And for him to stand up like that, I think was was hard. But that's what we all have to do. And like this stops now we have to all call this shit out
1: period yep and I think we're and i in my lifetime honestly because the the dialogue has opened up so much really for the first time I think I've ever seen it open up this much since I've been alive I think we're in a much better place to really start that conversation of change.
0: Yeah. So I asked this question of Sidonier and I'll ask you too, if it was your decision, if you were like God of the police, what changes would you make um, to hopefully prevent this from ever happening again?
1: Well, in the best case scenario, I would probably try and mix up if you're having um, officers go in partners. I would probably try and mix the races up as much as I possibly could. I also would want to do a lot more training, like real honest training about um race, and not that you, um, so that you, as a white woman, understand that if you pull me over and you approach me, even though you're probably the nicest in your role follower and everything that you understand that there is an inherent distrust because I, that I have immediately with you. I think that you, and it's not about you personally, it's about the uniform. And I think having a real understanding of that means that how you approach me and how you interact with me becomes a totally different, that becomes a different thing. I mean, I mean, it's, it's very general. I know it probably sounds oversimplified, but I mean, I'm a person just like, just like if you approach me and you're in that blue uniform i don't see you as a person i just see the blue uniform do you know what i mean and just like if if i'm working downtown and all i deal with is the worst sort of people you can fall in the trap where everybody down there now starts looking like them everybody does and i and i think that's a human thing i don't i think we as humans can do that i just think that We, the discussion has to start on very small things, and it's not going to seem like those small things have any change, but it's those thousands of small things that create the big one. And we got to talk about those small ones. And then if we can, if we can air those small things that happen all the time, then we're, I can almost promise you that we're going to avoid those big things because they won't happen.
0: Yeah, that's a really, I think that's a good note to um, to end on, William. Thank you. And that's the show. Make sure you check out the show notes for this episode's three things to help white people become better at anti-racism. They are Dave Chappelle put out a new set on YouTube that is well worth your, your 27 minutes. There's also a link to the movie that William and I discussed, River of Hope, although I will warn you that... The movie was made for like $34,000, and that is quite evident, but it is a fascinating story, and I think it does speak to the conversation that William and I just had about what can happen when we start to see each other as human beings as opposed to our role in society. Um, And then lastly, a link to John Oliver's excellent piece on policing and what defunding the police really means. So guys, I'm going to take a few weeks off this show as I'm very busy recording and filming workouts that you can find in a couple of places, 306090fitness.com. If you click on their streaming link, you will find A video and a couple of audio workouts that I have put out. I'm also going to be recording some meditations and some more like beginner level walking workouts. So keep an eye on that. And for the Americans, I have a bunch of rides that are about to drop in one of the fitness apps that I will announce as soon as I have a code for you. I will be able to get you two free weeks on the app and you can give it a shot, but wait to download it um, (laughs) until I give you the code. Watch my social feeds for info on those two projects. So goodbye for now. Take good care of each other and I will be back in a few weeks.